Good morning, everyone. <laughs> uh, when I laid out this series on hope, I laid out that it would be like six weeks of it. And I knew or I felt strongly that in order to do justice to the biblical idea of hope, we would have to face the subject that we're going to face today. And it's a little bit heavy. So I'm going to ask you to track with me and to, to have your, your thinking, your understanding, um, focus, engaged today. Um, it seems in some ways it's very timely the aspect of hope we're going to look at, because for, for many of us, we have just experienced the death of a very close friend and the death of uh, uh, a wife of a close friend. Diana Sanders uh, passed away just shortly ago after a very difficult uh, battle with a very, very rare disease. And she was only 61, I believe, years old when she, when she went to be with the Lord. And when someone near you, someone that you care about, um, uh, dies, it, it, it forces you to begin to think about things that are of your own mortality, think of, of ultimate type things. For me, it reminded me uh, very seriously of about 14 years ago when my mom at 61 also passed away from a rare disease. And right when that was happening, my best friend got a, a brain cancer. Uh, he was uh, one of those people that had just been with me in some of the most difficult ministry times of my life. He'd been a supporter. He'd been a close friend. It was always funny to me. He was a Jersey boy. I was a Mississippi boy. He was surprised I had so many teeth. And, uh, uh, I was surprised of other things with him, but uh, so we uh, we had this incredible relationship. But uh, at 39, he he um, he passed away, leaving four kids who were all really too young at the time to actually remember him and uh, his wife. And it was devastating to me. I remember. I mean, I was around 40 some odd years old, and. And suddenly I be, it was faced with this sense of death, this sense of, of um, obstacles. And I, I really had what I would call a, a, a crisis of what, do, what, is, what is worth wanting? What is worth desiring? And uh, thoughts ran through my head of, you know, no matter how hard we try, it seems like nothing ever gets better. Thoughts like, uh, no matter, you know, no matter uh, what else we might get, it seems like we lose so much. And when you have something you really care about, it's just so easy to lose it. And so right there around 42, 43 years old, I, I had to confront the, the kind of the death of desire as well as confronting the death of people that really mattered to me. And it was in those moments that I, I really had to ask the question, do I have a hope, a real hope that can confront death? And so that's what I want us to look at today, is do we have a real hope that can confront the power of death? And so I'm going to read a scripture to you today. I'm not going to ask you to read it with me. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to ask you to listen to it carefully, to process it as we're reading. It's a scripture that oftentimes is only talked about in terms of what does it mean about the second coming of Jesus. And because we sometimes differ in opinions, and because we have different ideas of the end times, sometimes we miss the real value of the scripture because we're arguing the controversy. What I'd like you to do is, is, is not to suddenly become a millennial view person right now. What I'd like you to do is to read this and to see what it says about hope and what it says to you and me about ourselves. So I'm going to read God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 13. We're going to, it's somewhat lengthy. I'm going to go all the way to 5. 11, and I'm going to read it out loud. I'm going to ask you to listen today. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let me just remind you, I've defined hope in a very specific way. This is this has been for me a, a, it's just becoming such a wonderfully transforming study for me on hope. I'm just really thankful for the work that Tim Keller at Redeemer does on this, for Jonathan Edwards, for C.S. Lewis, and for a host of others that I'm reading right now. Um, the way that I like you to think about hope is very, very simple. It is not the English idea of hope. It is a biblical idea of hope. Hope is a, is a life-changing dynamic. It means that the future to you, when you have hope, when you have biblical hope, the future is present now. That hope is based not on uncertainty. A lot of times when we use hope in English, we're talking about that which we are uncertain of. In many ways, we are, we are using hope as an optimist would use hope. I hope things go well. The kind of idea that friends of mine sometimes say, I prepare for the worst, but I hope for the best. The idea that some people have when they spend all their money on lottery. They know they're not going to win, but they hope they will. You know, that's the kind of hope that most people have. They have a hope about a positive outcome about uncertainties. That kind of optimism is not biblical hope. It's not that optimism in some ways isn't better than pessimism, but they both can be fleshly. They can both can be just the orientation of a certain personality. Some people are optimistic, just deny certain realities. Some people who are pessimistic, just deny the other side of the reality. And so what happens is many of us who are oriented towards optimism think that we are hopeful until our whole world can be destroyed from us. It is not that which calls you to biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty about things that haven't happened yet, but that you know are coming. As a matter of fact, the way that it's helped me over the years to see this is that I see in my soul, I picture it, I, I, I picture it as having a vault in my soul. And in that vault, I don't put possibilities. In that vault, I don't put outcomes that are outside of my control. In that vault, I put things that I know are certain. I put the things there that I value. I put the things there that I preserve. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't put something that wasn't valuable in your vault. 
You wouldn't put something just temporary. You want things that are going to stay there, that are going to have substance to them, that you know that you know that you know. You cannot have faith in uncertainty. You cannot have trust in that which is is ambiguous. You can only have trust and faith in that which you know is certain. And that produces a hope and an emotion of hope like never before. It's funny how many people have said to me over the years, they'll say things like, I have a great, I have great faith, but they're so anxious. I say, you don't have a great faith. You have great problems. You're not, you're not exhibiting faith. When you see the symptoms in your soul, when you see the symptoms of depression, I'm not talking about chemical or clinical type depression, but I'm talking about the despair, the hopelessness that is really biblical type depression. When you see that symptom, when you see the symptom of anxiety and fear and worry and constant concern over things that you have no control over, when you see yourself losing your temper, when you see yourself enraged or angry, not just, not just at little things that happen every now and then, but it, you're in a constant state of anger or it's boiling underneath only to boil over every now and then. When you see that, you are not seeing a person who has a great faith. When you see that, you are not seeing a person who has trust in something that is certain, and you are certainly not seeing a person who has great hope. The person who gives themselves over to these symptomatic things of anger and anxiety and depression, the person that gives themselves over to that has actually decided and determined that there are certain outcomes in their life, there are certain results that they have to have in order to be satisfied or fulfilled, or need I, you know, dare I say, even to be happy, and those results are in the hands of others and other circumstances. Anxiety, anger, depression, all of these symptoms that many of us wrestle with, they are telling us that we have put our hope for our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness, our fulfillment. We put our hope into things that are uncertain. We have put our hope into things that we have no right, nor do we have any ability to control. And what happens to many of us is we try to willpower ourselves up to not be angry, or we try to willpower ourselves up to not be afraid, or we try to willpower ourselves up to not be depressed. Guess what? That doesn't work. Even if you can suppress it, you're still not free from it. Even if you can restrain it, you're still not free. You're only free when it no longer controls you. You're only free when it's no longer an issue. How does that become an issue? Well, I really believe that the way God created the soul is that all of these expressions, whether it's, you know, and some of you, you need to get honest today. You really are anxious. You really are fearful. You really are angry. I love it when people who are shouting at me telling me they're not angry. There are many of you, you you like to be, and I, I say this with all respect and love. You like to be lazy with your emotions. You like to call discouragement, you know, like this kind of neutral ground, instead of recognizing that you're at a place of doubt, unbelief, lack of conviction, lack of certainty, and therefore lack of hope. And instead of saying, I am depressed and I don't know what I'm going to do, you try to make it sound better so nobody will scold you about it. It's time for us to get radically honest about what symptoms are manifesting. I remember this, this one person came to me, a lady in her 60s, and she came and she, she began to speak to me, and she began to tell me the story of her childhood. And she had sexual abuse, she had rape, she had all of these things in her childhood. And then she looked at me and she said, but those don't matter, they didn't affect me. What she came in for was she had an eating addiction. I said, do you not see that because you didn't deal with the pain and the hurt of what happened, you are now killing yourself by trying to eat away the pain? She goes, I never thought of it that way. Had lived 50 years with a lie. 
50 years with a lie and, and beat herself up every day over her addiction. But her addiction was telling her that there was something more than a symptom. There was a root. There was a place of hurt. The, the way the Lord made your soul is that the emotions tell you what you're believing. If you go after just the emotions, all you'll do is get a little bit of control, but you won't get freedom. You won't get freedom until you go after what you're believing, until you go after the lies that your beliefs are based on. When you go after the lies and you begin to put truth in there, the emotion won't immediately follow, but the healing will immediately start taking place. And the process of that healing will result in different emotions. See, in some ways, the reason I believe in inner healing and emotional healing is, is, is really all of those, those painful things, whether it's an addiction or whether it's, it's some kind of sinful behavior or sinful thoughts or whatever it is, it's all designed to kill you. The ultimate end of it is to destroy you. And so if we can, we can begin to go after this, what we're really going after is death. And we're saying that we have a hope that can confront death, that can stare it in the face and stare it down and win the battle over your body, over the way you think, over the way you feel, and over the choices that you make. And the problem for most of us as Christians is we still look like death has won. Because we've not learned that our hope is a living hope that confronts death. Now you can spend the rest of your days because grace is so beautiful and powerful and God is so merciful that you can keep living in a sin-confess, sin-confess, sin-confess kind of existence. You can continue to do what you were not made for in order to try to get fulfillment that you were made for. Or you can begin to confront death and all of the ways it's manifesting in your life, you can begin to confront death now with hope. This is what the apostle is telling us. He says it this way. I'll turn it one here. He says, you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So in this, he tells us, he's telling us how to confront death. Okay, there are those others, he says, who have no hope, or at least in comparison to the hope that we have, they have no hope. But he says, you can't grieve like they do. So in a sense, Keller here says, he says, this is what we would call an extreme balance, which seems like those two words shouldn't go together. It's extreme in that what he's saying to you is that you should all out with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your being, you should know how to grieve. That you got to know how to grieve. That we are not as Christians, we are not Stoics. Now some of you, you know, have unintentionally and passively just received a Stoicism because there's a certain way that Stoicism does work. But it does not confront death. Let me, let me explain what I mean by stoicism. Some of you have heard the saying, have a stiff, up, stiff upper lip. That kind of British idea comes from stoicism. But a better way of describing it comes from HGTV. Okay, my wife's got me hooked on decorator shows. I read, you know, <laughs> like renovation shows or whatever it is. And the first thing that they do at house hunters or renovation or whatever, one of the first things they do is they run in to see what kind of kitchen countertops the kitchen has. Okay, and if there's a laminate, they're not going to buy that house. You know, they're going to they're bust down the laminate. Everybody who's on HDTV always wants a surface that cannot be penetrated and cannot be stained. Okay, so they look for the different types of hard stones or, or whatever it is so that you have a kitchen counter that nothing can permeate and become like uh, bacteria or germs or whatever and won't stain it so it changes its color. Well, stoicism is like a kitchen counter for the heart. It teaches you 
It teaches you to become granite, to become stone, to become quartz, whatever one of those you want to be, to be cement so that nothing will get through and nothing will stain. But in order to do that, you lose your humanity. In order to do that, you have to deaden your heart. You cannot feel great passion. You cannot feel great joy if your heart is covered in cement. Granite countertops are beautiful, not for the heart. Jesus was not like this. Job was not like this. The biblical picture of confronting death is totally different than a stoic picture. When Jesus confronted the death of his friend Lazarus, and he went to his very good friend Mary, he comes to her. She knows that he could have kept Lazarus from dying because he'd already seen this. She'd already seen this. And she looks at him and she says something to this effect, if you had been here, he would not have died. Jesus does not answer her. You know what most Christians do at the funeral home? Don't worry, Mary, he's in a better place. I like to take them there sometime. (laughs) Because what they're saying is don't feel bad. What are they saying? Be a granite countertop. They're saying, I'm uncomfortable with your pain. So let me, let me say a cliche that will take it all away. And it's as trite as laminate. It doesn't work. Because it doesn't take the grief away. It makes the grief have to go underground. So that the person has to glaze over. Because that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say anything. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says he says nothing to Mary, but what what he did was he said Jesus wept. Now, those of us who are Bible people, when they used to tell us, memorize a verse, that was the first verse, right? (laughs) Shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. And it's clear there what it's talking about is he, he got extreme. He wept uncontrollably. He wept visibly. Guess what? He's saying in this process, because I don't think Jesus did anything unintentionally. Well, I think he's saying this before you can fix a problem, you got to feel the problem. Because we know what's going to happen. He's going to say into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is going to come out. And you could easily say, Why are you crying, Jesus? You're about to let him out. But Jesus wept uncontrollably. He felt the problem before he fixed the problem. Come on, every wife in here would like your husband to hear that right now. Right? (laughs) The women are going, Because all of us men, we'd rather, we don't want to feel the inadequacy we feel when our wives are crying. We don't want to feel like we're responsible. So immediately a wife begins to say, here's my problem. And if there's tears, oh man, we wish SportsCenter was on right now. (laughs) And the tears come and we're sitting there going, how can I fix this? How can I fix this? Because we think we're supposed to be granite. We think we're supposed to be an impermeable surface that can neither stain nor be penetrated. Because we were told when we were little boys that men don't cry. Jesus wept uncontrollably, not fake tears, not the tears of a paid mourner, the tears of a friend. Come on. You see it? It's not stoicism. It's extreme. He wept. He felt it. He lo- the loss. You see when you weep, when you grieve, you grieve because something that had value to you, something that had meaning to you is lost to you. Jesus is the one who said to us, in this world you will have trouble. But He's also the one who said, I have overcome the world. And He's also the one who said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. If you're going to have abundant life, you cannot be a granite countertop over your heart has to be extreme. You have to be able to grieve. But then the scripture goes on. It's not finished there. And this, 
I, I know I'm pounding this because I think many of us have missed this. I definitely missed it. I got the weeping part. So many of us weep. We've learned to weep. Uh, Ron and Wanda are the cause of a lot of this. Because those of you who take PSF, you have to do grief journals. And the tons of you in this, in, this, in this building have done grief journals. So you've learned to weep. And sometimes some of us have gotten stuck at the weeping. All we do is weep. It. And we think that we're victims. And we think, that, we think that the enemy is the wrong enemy. Now listen to me. When you weep, when you grieve, you watch what Jesus does next. He moves to the tomb. Now, before he says anything, the scripture lays out his emotional state. And it says when he got to the tomb, and he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to speak into the tomb, there's a, there's a word there that's written in the Greek that's not easily translated into English, but the idea of the concept is he became angry. But it's not just anger. It says it's a quaking, shaking kind of anger. So he moves from being grieved and saying, oh man, my friend is gone and my friends are are suffering. He moves to the tomb and then he feels this incredible anger that shakes his whole body. I don't know if you've ever been that angry, but I have, where you just uncontrollably begin to shake. You're trying to hold on to your your teeth because they're shattering. You're so mad and you know if you let it go, it's not going to be good. That's the picture here. Who is he mad at? He's not mad at Mary. He's not mad at Lazarus. He's not mad at Martha. He's not mad at the mourners. He's mad at death. He's angry at death. It's death who is the intruder. It's death who doesn't belong here. Lazarus belongs there. Mary belongs there. Jesus belongs there. Death does not belong there. He gets angry. Now, he could, have, he could have canceled out death right then, but he had not yet paid for our sins. So you would have living people who are living in hell, in the hell and the poison of their sin. But he did, for our sake and for the sake of his friends, he called forth in his authority and in his power, he called forth his friend from the tomb. I've always loved this part. He doesn't say, come out. He says, Lazarus, come out. Because if he had said, come out, they would have all been coming. (laughs) So he said, Lazarus, come out. But before, you see, you have to see this thing. What Jesus is teaching us in this picture is death is not natural. Death is an enemy. It is not something you simply accept. It's something you grieve when it takes someone away from us. You grieve at the loss. You feel it because something that I care about is now gone and you don't put a cliche band-aid over it. And then when you recognize, you know, in many ways, there are many of us that are recognizing that Satan is is an enemy, but he's not the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy of our soul was sin and death. As a matter of fact, Paul capitalizes those two. He personifies them. He says our enemy is sin and our enemy is death. I know some of you think, well, you know, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. Yeah, those are manifestations of the conspiracy of sin and death. Your enemy is sin. Your enemy is anywhere you act independently of the Holy Spirit. Anywhere you find yourself out of alignment with the will of God. Because when you're in that place of rebellion and you're in that place of being out of alignment, you're vulnerable. But that, the, the ultimate enemy, the, the last and final enemy is death. And when Jesus who created Lazarus and Jesus who created us confronted death, he got angry. You see, because here's how you were made. You weren't made to get old. You were made to get better. You weren't made to get wrinkled and shriveled up. You were actually made to get more beautiful, more handsome, stronger. The one that stopped that is death. Now, it's important that you get this. Because some of us don't realize that the hope that's ahead of us 
is what's been lost or taken from us. It is not something unconnected to you. Heaven is not a place of unconnected future. Heaven is a place that actually corresponds to everything you're missing now. And what hope is, it brings heaven into the present and changes your character and changes your patience and changes your fear of men and your insecurities into a confidence into the certainties of the Lord. You see, what we've believed is is something really puny about heaven. In many ways, in the average evangelical church, it's, it's really against the law to scream and yell out. You know, it's against the law to hurt so deeply. It, you know, it, immediately people will say things like, you know, your loved one is in such a better place. You need to, you know, you need to be more appropriate here. Job would not have been comfortable in the average church. Because you know what he did? He violently ripped his clothes. He violently, when he lost his children, he violently ripped up his clothes and he grieved and he mourned. Jesus almost violently wept, shakingly wept, violently approached death and said, I'm, I'm not satisfied with this situation. And a pagan idea because there's no future. There's no ultimate future. There's, you came from nothing. You're going to nothing. Homer, Homer writes it this way. He said, why should you even grieve? What's the use of crying? It will not bring anyone back. So all the tears that so many people have really felt over the years are stored up inside, and they come out in addictions. They come out in symptoms. They come out in things that are destructive. In some ways, if you can't face death, Death is controlling you. There's a counseling movement today where everybody's talking about death is natural. It's a counseling movement based on the Lion King, the circle of life. Do you know what the circle of life tells you if you listen? It's pretty music, but if you listen to it closely, the best you can hope to attain is to be fertilizer. Your future is that your descendants will be able to eat you. I'm like, boy, that gives me such hope. You ask me what my hope is. One day I will be fertilizer. That doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? See, I think you've got, are you tracking with me on this? Because I, I think I'm getting across clearly. That many of us have believed these lies about death. We believe these lies about the future. And so we have a kind of hopeless hope because we keep saying cliches and all of this stuff. Death is not natural. Death is an intruder in our world. Death came as a curse. Death is not a blessing. And we, you and I, we need to have this kind of extreme sort of balance that begins to understand that we're not, we're, we're not happy with death because death is not supposed to be here. And so when we stand up to it and we begin to understand and confront it and, and recognize that when we lose people, it breaks our hearts and we need to be broken. But at the same time, the enemy that we're facing is, is not the death of our friend, but death itself. Well, Dylan Thomas in his, his poem, he says, do not go gently into this good night. That's the, that's the idea of going into death. Um, many of us, what happens is by not taking the biblical approach to death, this hopeful approach to death, by not taking this, you're killing off a part of yourself. You know, you're not a tree. You're not grass. You're far more consequential than that. And so, I mean, just look at these things. Death is not a friend. It's not the circle. It's the end. Uh, you know, to not grieve. Here's where the balance starts to come in. If you don't grieve, you kill your humanity. Okay? But the other thing is, if you only rage, 
to the point where you become bitter, then that also destroys your humanity. I've met many people who are so angry, so bitter at death, at what they've lost. Many famous people at times have rejected the faith because when they were kids, something happened. A sister died or someone had cancer or a parent died and they still rage about it. It's created a bitterness in their life and so now they are distant from God and distant from faith because they have, they have allowed the bitterness to take a place. It's an interesting thing about bitterness. It's a root that takes up an awful lot of your soul. Any of you that are bitter, any bitterness, any grudges, any unforgiveness tends to just not only be an access for the enemy of your soul to exploit you, but it also is such a space taker that there's no ground, there's no room for happiness or joy. There's no room for hope. You cannot stay in these places. This is where the balance becomes. And so what, what I think Jesus would speak to us or Paul here would speak to us about, he says, you take your anger and in your anger and, and, and your understanding that, that death is our enemy, you take your anger and you rub hope in it. The picture, uh, the picture that we get is, is kind of in the old days where there was not refrigeration and you would have to rub salt into the meat to protect the meat. If you didn't, the meat would just spoil. But if you rubbed enough salt and you salted it enough, meat could be preserved and it could, it could stay safe to eat. Now, I, I, I kind of get this because uh, I haven't liked the barbecue that they have in New York. It doesn't taste like Georgia or North Carolina. And so I had to learn how to do it myself. And so I take these spices that I love and I take the salt and I take all this and I make sure every single part of the meat that we're going to eat is covered with this. And I rub it in and then I let it marinate overnight so that it'll be perfect. Every piece of it will be covered in that, in that savory taste. See, in a sense, all of us, when we get in touch with our grief, we will naturally go to anger. Why did that happen to me? How did that happen to me? Why didn't you stop that from happening to me? All of that, and until you can rub that hope into it, that will become bitterness that will, that will destroy you and keep you from the comforter and keep you from the God of your salvation. It's important that we begin to understand this balance, that you cannot live your life in fear of death or in fear of people or in fear of the future. When you live your life in fear, it does something very, very powerful to you in that you still need people, but because you are fearful, nobody's touch can touch you. When people are fearful, they are easily depressed. When people are fearful, they are easily angered. When people are fearful, they are easily anxious and worried. Because what they've believed the lie is that somehow your happiness, your satisfaction, your fulfillment is totally up to you. And by not being able to control your circumstances or people in your life, you begin to get into a sense of hopelessness or a sense of anger or a sense of resentment or a sense even of trying to control it by worry and fear and all of these things. You see, what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about being fully alive mo- emotionally, but being able to deal with the deepest negative emotions in such a way that your hope confronts it and overcomes it. Um, actually, wh- the way that Paul deals with death is this. He makes fun of it. Today, we sang a number of, a number of songs that had this verse in it. Death, where is your sting? That is Paul making fun of death. Notice he's speaking to it personally. Death, where is your, not death, where is its? He's saying to death, death, you've got nothing on me. It is rising up in confidence, rising up in hope, and speaking to death in a way that superstitious religious people would never do. Now, the Bible talks a lot about death. As a matter of fact, here Paul goes in a kind of a, a similar reference that he has in Ephesians 6 where he talks about putting on the breastplate of faith and love and, and for the helmet, the hope of your salvation. What's that hope from? Salvation from death. And so, in a way, if you could rephrase this, and I'm taking a, a poem that was written by jo- George Herbert and rephrasing it a bit, and he says it sort of this way, saying, come on, death, do your worst to me. 
The more you lay me low, the more you make me rise. The more you try to break me, the more you'll make me. The more you dismiss, diminish me, the greater you make me. See, that's how hope confronts death. And it's not because you're bigger than death. It's because Jesus beat death. It's because Jesus defeated death. See, you only got a, you got, we got a little, we got a snippet. We got a preview when he took on Lazarus. When in his quaking anger, he spoke and said, come on out, Lazarus. We saw that Jesus, one, knew that death was the enemy, and he also proved to us that he had power over that enemy. But the ultimate proof is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive. He went down into death carrying the burden of our sin, but death had no hold over him. And on the third day, he rose again, and death no longer has any sting. But you have to begin to recognize that you being in Christ have the same power over death. And it needs to manifest not only in you not being afraid of dying, it needs to manifest in you being not afraid to live. Not afraid of people. Not afraid of people's opinions. Not afraid of the future. All of those fears are based and come out of our enemy death. And, and if you're going to sing, where's your sting? You've got to back up what you're singing. If you're going to do like Paul, see, Paul could back it up. He'd faced death many times. You read his story. He's left for dead here. He's stoned to be left for death there. He's thrown into a prison with all his bleeding cuts and infection. And there, were, there was nothing, no kind of stuff you could put on your hands in those days. He's living in a germ-filled world with all kind of bleeding and cuts, and he faces it every single day, everywhere he went, and he laughed at it. He laughed at it. I never knew if I could do that. Most of us don't know if we can do that till you face it. I remember specifically when Alicia, our administrative assistant, came to Lisa and she said, I had this dream that Mike died. And he was on a missions trip and that he died. And so Lisa began to pray. And some of you know the story. She began to pray. She began to tell me to pray. And I was like, you know, honey, I think that's your assignment. I'm just going to listen to the Lord on this one. And I had no fear whatsoever. I had no fear. I knew that the dream was real. I knew it was a warning. Lisa was really clear on that. Of course, every day I'd, I'd go get in the car, and she said, drive very carefully today. And, uh, and as, it, uh, as it came about, we were on a mission trip, and I got malaria. And it was a deadly form of malaria. And it had been in my system for such a long period of time. And I remember what it felt like to have death squeezing the life out of me. It was very, very physical. What, it felt like something was wrapped around my middle, and was just squeezing like a snake. And uh, kind of like a python, those of you who know the spirit world. And it was squeezing and would not let go. And the pain would start here, and it would ruminate all the way up in my teeth, and my teeth would start chattering and stuff. Now, my fever was about 106 for five days. And my blood was saturated with parasites. And uh, there were many of you who were a big part of the fact that I'm here today. The prayer teams that set up, prayed all night for me. The elders who came and spoke with authority. Ron, who's over here, who came on a Saturday when he said, I look like death and said enough. And just spoke over me and began to speak healing. I had one more heart attack. You weren't quite enough at that point. I had one more heart attack after that where it came after me again and was constricting, constricting, and the pain was just excruciating. And do you know what? I mean, I felt the pain. I felt the fullness of pain. Don't, I'm not, I, I don't suffer quietly. Uh, but I will tell you, this is what was going on in my head when the pain hit, especially after the last prayer Ron prayed over me. I said, is this the best you can do? You know, and at that point, I wasn't hallucinating, so I know it was real. And they said I was having a heart inflammation. And I just looked at him and the pain that I started to laugh. And I said, death, where is your sting? If this is the best you can do, I have defeated you. 
And then within weeks, I began to get my health back. Now, I've, it, it hasn't been easy because it it's been painful for four years in different ways. But I stand before you this morning and I tell you, death, where is your sting? And some of you are afraid to do this because you have superstition instead of faith. Some of you are afraid to do this. You're afraid to mock death. You're afraid to face Satan. You're afraid to face your sin because you think, you think there's something that is, that is more powerful than grace. There is nothing more powerful than grace. I knew when Lisa said to me, if it's time for me to go home, I will go home. But if it's not time for me to go home, then there's nothing death can do to me. And he proved it. He proved it. I had a laugh in my spirit as death gave it its best try to kill me and it couldn't take me out. Listen what D.L. Moody says. He said, someday you will read in the papers. This is when he was dying. Someday you'll read in the papers. D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. Moody was a very famous evangelist, one of the most famous evangelists of all time for Chicago. He says, don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. That's how you mock death. That's how you stand up with swagger. See, part of it is, if you can still be called by death, death still has you. If you can still be laid low like a victim, if you don't realize what it is to to be real and say, I have lost things and they mean something to me and it hurts. And they either have written it out or spoken it out or in some way got it from the inside out because grieving gets what's in you out of you. Makes room, it makes space. You have to be able to do that if you want to fully live. But then you don't stop there. You start standing up with a backbone and you start saying, I'm not just going to sing these songs. I'm going to live these songs. Death, where is your sting? Do your worst to me. You won't be able to do any more than the Father allows you. Because the day of my death is set. And even when that happens, it's a promotion for me. Because I've been born of the Spirit and there is not a single thing that is mortal about the spirit that's been birthed in you. This thing here is mortal. But what's been birthed in you by the, by the Savior is immortal. Please listen to me on this. What Paul is also saying is that the transition from this life to the next is not where you're going from the material to the immaterial. If it was, then death will have won. You see, if in some ways he can just make what's all really personal and true about you to end in this life, then death wins. See, if you're just going on in your next life, you're a cockroach or something, or in your next life, you're just a spirit, you know, thing, a, a, a you know, some joined consciousness with no personality and nothing personal about you, then death wins. And even what some believers do, they, they, they tend to look and say, well, heaven is this consolation prize. It's where we will be consoled for all eternity. I don't want to live for that. I don't want to go somewhere where we're in a constant therapy session for the rest of eternity. <laughs> weeping over and, and complaining and hearing. I mean, it's hell enough to hear all the problems on earth. <laughs> I mean, think about what is he saying in this verse? He's saying that what is coming for you, what's coming for me will connect. Everything that's been missing here will be there. Everything you've lost here will be restored. 
all that is real to you, all that is precious to you is not going to be lost in the transition. All that, all that has been incomplete will be completed. All that's been taken will be restored. Everything that's been destroyed will be re-envisioned for you. This life is not some unconnected testing point for something that will have no connection to you. He actually says it this way, that everything is moving towards you being personal and present with him. Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, he uses the word parousia. It's a very technical word. It talks about the coming of the Lord, but it's the coming that's very specific of an emperor or a king. And it speaks about the fact that all those who went before us are who are already with him will come with him. And those of us who are still here, we will meet him where he comes to. And the picture is this, that we have sent out a conquering king, that we have sent out the general of our armies, that we have sent forth the one who has gone and has won the battle. And we begin to hear that he's coming And when he comes, we leave the city. When he comes, we leave our homes and we go where he is and we meet him. And he's on the road. He's coming. And as he comes, we come with him. We don't go to some place with clouds and harps and wings. We go where the king is. And we meet him and we come back to this earth with our conquering king. And he sets things right. There's something in you that you know it's not right here. Even the best that we experience is not the best that could be. And the promise of this verse and what I hold on to and what keeps me away from the temporary pleasures of sin is not simply that they're bad for me. It's that I have a king. That I'm going to meet him. Either I'm going to come with him or I'm going to meet him and we're coming back. And the world that he's going to restore is the world you always dreamed of. It's the world you were made for. See, when we see him face to face, it says when he will, we will know him as we are known. What does that mean? It means simply this. That what you've always longed for, what you've always wanted was that someone would know you to the bottom and love you to the top. That's what you've always wanted. But none of us in this room can do that. I am so thankful my wife is not a mind reader. Because if she knew some of the things I thought when she says certain things, some of the things I think when she makes certain faces or the sound effects in the car, All of that, if she knew those thoughts. Now, you know, I can tell her generally things for her to forgive me. But if she could know everything, she would have divorced me 34 years ago or just never married me at all. And if that's not true of the rest of you, you're lying. (laughs) Here is the honest truth. If we were known to the bottom by others around us, we would not be loved to the top. We'd be scared of each other. And we're honest, we're scared of ourselves. What is this scripture saying? It's very simply saying, the one who knows you to the bottom loves you to the top. And when you meet him face to face and you see that look in his eyes, the one you're afraid you're going to see, but the one you always long to see, when you look in his eyes and he says, I know you and I love you. See, religious people, It'll never work. They're the most, religious people are the most unhappy people in the world. Secular people can at least drown their pain. Religious people have to work so hard in the hope that he's not going to be mad at them. But always knowing they never measure up. Paul says the only people who are truly hopeful are not religious people, not secular people, but people who are waiting, who believe, who have taken the certainty that I'm going to see him face to face. And when I see him, the look in his eyes is going to melt me and it's going to break me and it's going to remake me. And then I'm going to look and you're going to be there. And I'm going to connect with you and you're going to connect with me. And all the promise we have had in this life will be fulfilled in that life. 
There's an assurance to this. There's an assurance in the midst of this. One of the, one of the things that I probably love the best that I've heard as I've studied over this thing is a story by one of the, a great Presbyterian minister by the name of uh, Donald uh, Barnhouse. And he tells the story of how his wife died when his children were still young. And he was taking his children to the funeral. And one of the youngest ones was having a great deal of difficulty. And so he wanted to help his child. And so he said to the, I think it was a boy, he said to the boy, do you see that truck over there? And the boy said, yes. He said, do you see the shadow of the truck? Because the truck casts a shadow. And he asked his son, he said, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And the little boy thought, I'd rather be run over by the shadow of the truck. And then the father looked at him and said this, Jesus was run over the truck of death so that you would only be run over by the shadow of death. Let me say that again. Jesus was run over by the truck of death so that you would only have to encounter the shadow of death. That is why we can say, why? Death, where is your sting? Does that make sense to you? To me, this has been very powerful as I've gone through this, and I'm realizing, you know what? We've gotten so presence-minded, so circumstantially-minded, so what is God doing for me now-minded that we have forgotten our great hope. I mean, that... You can pray about anything with God. You can ask him for a new car. You can ask him for a new house, a new job. You can ask to look beautiful. You, you know, you can get a Holy Spirit beauty treatment. You can, you know, there's all kind of things that you can ask him. And, and most of those, it's amazing how he does wonderful things in all of those areas. But that's not our hope. Our hope is that we are people with a future. The future tends, when we have faith, the future begins to impose on the present. And the, the interesting thing is, if you stay in your anger, and you stay in your anxiety, and you stay in your depression, the future doesn't ever get to penetrate. And so then, being depressed, you need people, but no one can get close to you. Being anxious, you need the help of others, but no one can help you. Being angry makes it to where everybody has to keep their distance from you. And so the very thing you need in, or, in the midst of your anger, your anxiety, and your depression, you can't get. And yet, if you will be this extreme balanced person, you'll say, look, my anger is not helping me. My anxiety is not satisfying me. My depression isn't even, it isn't even true. It's a lie, and I'm believing a lie. And then you begin to say, where did these come from? They didn't come from grace. They didn't come from mercy. They came from death. I'm going to stand up to death. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me. Will you stand together? I'm gonna, I don't know what your most swagger pose is. But I think you need a little swagger right now. And I think you need to come up against all the religious spirits that have been in your life, against all the religious strongholds that have been in your life. Because, see, people who are religious will still fear death. Because they don't think that death is defeated. And they don't know that they're in union with Christ. Paul had no fear of death. Therefore, he could live. Now, I'm not saying that there might not be. There, there probably are things you're going to have to grieve. The Holy Spirit's going to probably bring memories to you going to bring things that hurt you that you've never dealt with. He's going to bring up your anger issues. He's going to bring up your anxiety. He's going to bring up your, your depression things. He's going to do that, but not so he can embarrass you or stick you in a, you know, get you stuck, but he's going to do that so you can have joy. I really believe this with, with all my heart. We should be the people with the most party in the whole world because the joy I have is, is never ending. The hope I have is eternal. I mean, there should be laughter in us like no one else because we know what's going to happen. 
And because we've placed our trust and our hope on certainty, not uncertainty, that the vault of our heart is filled with certain things, not uncertain things. So in order to do that, I think you've got to prophetically, you've got to do two things with me. I know it'll be like vacation Bible school, but that's okay. All right, whatever looks like a swagger to you. Me, it's kind of pointing my finger or pounding my fist or getting my feet. Come on, you've got to get tougher than that. Some of you, death is just killing you right now. Come on, you're standing up. It's the heavyweight championship of the world. All right, stand up to it. I mean, if you want to punch it, it's all right with me. Just don't punch the person in front of you or beside you. Okay, but stand up to it. Stand up to it. Now, if, if you want to, all right, I'm just seeing this, okay? I'm trying to flow with what the Spirit's doing. There's some of you, you've got the people, I want you to understand, the people-pleasing Spirit answers to death. And I think some of you need to break that off because most of your fear is the fear of man. Uh, this will really tweak you right now, but I think if, if you want to be broken of people-pleasing and you don't want to be a slave to others, but you want to be a free man or a free woman, most people who are angry and anxious are people-pleasers. Most people who are depressed are people-pleasers because you just can't please people. So if that's your issue and you want to be free, I think you should come up here with me and we'll, we'll, we'll punch this thing to death. Come on, if you're afraid of people, you're afraid of approval, afraid of disapproval, I think this is where death is manifesting in you. If you're afraid of the future, you're afraid of the, you know, you're like, the future's uncertain, I'm so afraid, I've been anxious, I've been letting anxiety control me, come on. We might have everybody up here in a little bit. Okay? I am certain of this, if you don't kill death, death is killing you. And I think you got to stand up to it. you got to stand up to it. Fear of uncertainty. Fear of the future. Fear of death. Now, whatever that swagger is, now don't lose the swagger up here. This, this isn't where you suddenly get religious up here. You're a warrior. All right, so let's start with just the biblical thing. Say it together. Either point your fist or your finger. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your sting? Okay, now, I believe what the Spirit's been showing me is the sting has been for many of you in people-pleasing. Because you've tried to make yourself so essential and so important and tried to make yourself have value. And what you're doing is you're believing a lie that you have value by what you can do. Instead of recognizing you have value because you're a child of God. If you're born of the Spirit, you're an adopted son. You're an adopted daughter. And no one can take that away from you. No one can take that away. Would you put your fist up and say, Death, I pull out your sting. I will not be a people pleaser. I will not value. I will not measure my value by what I can do. But I take a stand right here. Right now, now, that I am a child of God, that I am am in Jesus, that Jesus Jesus is in me. me. So death, death, (laughs) do your worst. If you break me, me, I will rise up. up. If you hurt me, me, I will be healed. If you diminish me, I will rise up greater than before. Can you hear? Can you feel your spirit rise up? See, if you're religious, you're afraid to say what I just said. Let's. Re- I think death. I think religion answers to death. So I'd like for us to take like karate chop right now. Don't hurt anybody. Okay, karate chop. I cut off, I cut off all, religious ties all religious ties to my soul. To my soul. I, cancel out I cancel out every religious curse, every religious, curse, every religious, spirit, every religious spirit, every strategy of the religious spirit, and I give myself wholly, fully, to the death and the resurrection and the ascension, and the ascension 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you to do one other renunciation with me. Okay? I renounce, I renounce all superstition, all, superstition, all, superstitious, talk, all superstitious talk, all fear of the future, all fear of the future that comes from curses. That comes from curses. I, am not cursed, I am not cursed. I am blessed. I, am blessed. I choose to be honest. I choose to be genuine. I choose to be transparent. I will hold nothing back. Now this, I, I can't make you say this, but I hope you will say it from your own heart. I choose to grieve what I have lost, what has been taken from me. I choose to be angry at death. But I also choose to rub hope into that place of anger. See, I want you to see a picture. Your heart, you're rubbing hope into it like you, like you would salt meat. You're rubbing hope into your heart. You're not foolish to do this. You're foolish to stay bitter. You're foolish not to grieve. But you're rubbing, you're, you're rubbing those preservatives. You're rubbing the spices. You're anointing your heart with hope. I mean, all we're saying is this simple old gospel. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what we're saying here. See, what we've done is we've allowed death to be the initiator of the conversation. We're not allowing that anymore. We are initiating the conversation. And it comes from heaven, and it comes at earth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Here's here's one, one final sealing thing. You are the conquering army that he chose. You are the conquering army that he chose. And he's, what, what's being conquered is death and sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.